you join me and we'll stand together in uh, respect and honor for the Word of God. Luke chapter 12. At this time, after so many thousands of the crowd had gathered together that they were trampling on one another, he began saying to his disciples first, Be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. But I say to you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have no more they can do to you. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two asaria? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the word of the Lord. Now before we get too deep into the nitty-gritty of those 12 verses, this is uh, in our Bibles, it's a chapter transition, uh, so I think it's good that we remember a little bit of the context from chapter 11, uh, particularly the last two verses. So 53 and 54, look with me, it says, And when he, Jesus, left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting to catch him in something he might say. And that itself coming off of these, these many woes that Jesus has proclaimed against the Pharisees, against the scribes, um, highlighting their hypocrisy as we're going to see even more today. But that, those two verses clue us into something that Jesus was certainly aware of, which was the reality of what was going to come and the reality of what his disciples, his followers were going to face, which is heavy persecution. Uh, those who confess Christ are going to be hated by many. And so it's, it's with that in view that Jesus then speaks particularly to his, what's called here, disciples. He, he later refers to them as friends. He has a message for them, and I think it's very much a message of preparation. Be prepared for what is to come. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's good to, to realize that that is the context of this, because th- these are passages that sometimes you might consider hell and brimstone. We, we talk about hell. We talk about fearing the one who has the power to cast into hell, but yet... This is in the context of actually an encouragement to disciples. Um, And the crowd is is a mixed crowd. It says that it's after many thousands. The word is myriads. We see this in a few other places in Scripture. It's often, when it's referenced literally, it's talking in tens of thousands to give you something of a sense. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a a tens of thousands because it is often used just figuratively to speak of an innumerable amount of people so many that you certainly couldn't begin to count it. It gives us even more descriptive language. They're trampling on one another. This is the sort of frenzy that Jesus and his teaching ministry have begun to to foster. 
and it, it's caused anger from the Pharisees, but yet there are some who are rightly called disciples. They're, they're interested in learning. Uh, some of them may have already, in some sense, committed to Christ and, and are, are on that path. Others still figuring it out. Who is this Jesus? What exactly is he going to say? Um, so we do. We have a very large crowd filled with people who are very interested to hear what this could be the Messiah is going to say. He uses the word, the phrase, leaven. Uh, that's something that would have been even more particular and understandable to the, to, the, to the Jewish culture at the time. They made their own bread. Most of us don't make our own bread. But most of us are still at least a little bit familiar with the idea of yeast, that it is, a, is an element, an ingredient in making bread. It's a small thing, not so detectable, but then given time, it's the very thing that causes the bread to rise. It's a very instrumental part in the bread-making process. But here he's using it to talk about hypocrisy specifically. I think perhaps the better analogy that would communicate to us uh, in our context is cancer. He, he's calling hypocrisy a cancer. It's um, particularly dangerous and insidious because at first you don't notice it. And, and that's the great danger here to the hypocrisy that Christ is, is speaking of, um, especially at the beginning. It's just, just just a little bit, and, and so you're not going to be so attuned to the fact that this is actually deadly. This, this is something that kills, right? He also uses this phrase, he, he, he talks in verse 2 and 3, right? He says, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops, and this, these, these inner rooms would have been part of, of the house, the, the most private place, truly in, in the inward part where you would have that sense of nobody's going to necessarily know what's going on here. So it, privacy would be a good word for it. I think even secrecy. We have other passages in Scripture that talk about it. Things, things happen in secret in the inner room, and so nobody else knows about it. So he, he's, he's creating this picture of nobody knows what's going on in these dark places, in these inner rooms, right? And that's what the hypocrite wants. That's, and that's very much what hypocrisy is. It's, it's, it's wanting to have things both ways. It wants to be able to put on the surface veneer of godliness or righteousness, but then to be able to foster and harbor all manner of sinful thoughts in the heart. Uh, we tend to think of hypocrisy, and rightly so, as um, maybe saying, saying something and, and then doing something else, and that's true, that's certainly hypocrisy. But Jesus seems to be going even deeper, even deeper than that. It's not just betraying uh, what you say and what you do, but that what's going on uh, in, in the heart, right? Uh, it would include the, the, very, the person who would, who would go and compliment and speak so highly and say these wonderful things to their friends, but then gossip about them behind their back, right? Or... Uh, the person who would, who, would, who would say that, oh, you know, life's not all about money. We need to, we want to be a good steward of our money. But then they're, they're, they're boastful about their, their own charitable giving. There's hypocrisy there. Uh, the person who would be very quick to, to condemn and to speak against, oh, it's, 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 a, it's a terrible thing to, to sleep around outside of marriage, and it certainly is. But then they're totally okay to foster lustful thoughts in their own heart or mind. That's hypocrisy. So we see hypocrisy and others, um, but are we considering where perhaps it is in our own hearts? And that 
it's, it's a cutting word, but, but that's what, what Christ is certainly saying here. 1 Corinthians uh, 4, verses 3 through 5, Paul says this uh, in, in reference to himself. He says, but to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of the heart. And then each one's praise will come from, from God. Uh, the phrase that Paul uses, manifesting the motives of the heart, I think that's, there's a key and understandable takeaway phrase here that even beyond what we say, certainly beyond even what we do, what's the motive of your heart, right? So, because that, God sees even that. Nothing goes unnoticed. The inner room is not so inner that God can't see it. The darkness is not so dark that God can't see it. And so he's, he is telling us, beware, be on guard against these things as they manifest in, you know, a false religious system. Certainly the Pharisees, they, they, they were propagating an entirely false religious system that, that, that was okay to have the appearance of cleanness on the outside, but then on the inside is filled with dead men's bones, as Jesus uses in another passage. Um, but he, he certainly wants us to examine and consider wh where is this hypocrisy, this leaven, even in my own life? What sort of sins, what sort of uh, guilty pleasures am I going to try and actually hide from God that I'm going to put in this inner secret room um, and leave unaddressed because I certainly want to be, I want to give the appearance of godliness. I want to be known as the good Christian person, but then I also want to enjoy these secret sins. And he, he's, he's saying, well, regardless of what you end up doing here, it's going to be exposed. It will be exposed, and if not now, then later. Um, and, and that's the, the principal piece here, I think, that is this, this inner hypocrisy. Um, it, it actually, it stems from being more afraid of men and what people will think than it is about God and, 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 and what, how he views these things. Because we think, oh, if I can hide this from people, then I'm okay. Well, then what have you just said? You've said that what people think, that's what you're primarily concerned with, right? And scripture often uses the language of fear in this context. So go ahead and look at, at, at verse 4, verse 4 and 5. How might we address this proclivity to hypocrisy? How, how can I avoid this leaven of hypocrisy? Verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So there is something of an antidote to this hypocrisy that's a right fear of the Lord. When we are rightly fearing the Lord and considering things as he considers them, and, and not being content with, with any amount of internal sinfulness or selfish desire, there is, a, there is a good pathway to avoid the hypocrisy because nothing goes unnoticed um, by God. This is obviously the, the, the verses that speak about, speak about hell, speak about the one who casts into hell. Um, for, for many of us, we, we may have grown up in a, in a cultural context of hell is, is the little devil with the horns and the kooky tail, and he's got a pitchfork and he jabs people and things. Uh, which is certainly, you, you won't find any of that language um, in Scripture. That's not the, the Bible's teaching on hell. Um, this won't be a, 
a great endeavor to doc, on the doctrine of hell here, but I do think it's good to know the, the word that actually is used here is Gehenna. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that. You've heard about that. But it's a reference to a particular place, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. Uh, and that is where, back, you can read about it in the Old Testament. Um, this is a place where idolatry was practiced. Children were sacrificed to false gods. Um, and then, ultimately, Josiah ends up having, the, there's a restoration under King Josiah. Uh, and, and he ends up desecrating, but in a positive sense, some of these idolatrous places, even in, the, in, the, in Gehenna, um, and it becomes known within the Jewish community as this, it is just a gross and repulsive, it, it represents, maybe more than anything else, God's judgment. Again, that this was wickedness, this was wicked idolatry that, that Israel had pursued, and God has thoroughly judged, and then over time it had become really just a, uh, something of a, of a trash heap, they would dump dead bodies, all, and just, there was that constant smoldering of the burning refuse and, 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 and trash and, and just all manner of unclean things that were just continually piled up in this valley of Gehenna. And so, so when he says hell, that's, what, that's where their mind is going. That's, that's not, not the little pitchfork red guy um, with a crazy laugh. Um, that's, that's, yeah, that's not exactly a biblical view. On top of that, and even without knowing that, even if we didn't know, if we weren't aware of Gehenna and that sort of things, it's interesting, right, the language where he says, fear the one who has authority to cast into hell after death. Death isn't so bad. There's something much worse. That in and of itself, that, that wouldn't make any sense if hell was simply the ceasing to be, as, as, as some people, both within Christianity, as they claim, um, but then certainly many false religions would say, you know, hell, oh, hell is simply ceasing to be. It's some ultimate annihilation where the body and the soul just fade away into, into nothing. Um, then Jesus doesn't make any sense. If, that's, if, if that is what hell is, then this exhortation falls completely flat because he says, don't be afraid of just the cessation of your life or the person who could take your life. Be afraid of the one who can judge after you die. Um, so I think that is just, it's a, it's a good thing, an interesting thing to note, living in a world that we do, that seeks to undermine the truth of God's word, tries to whisper lies and say, oh, maybe, maybe hell isn't actually eternal punishment. Maybe it's just disappearing. If that was the case, then, then Jesus doesn't really make much sense here. I think the big takeaway uh, in this is actually tied back into the hypocrisy piece that a right fear of God reorients and reprioritizes our, our desires, the things that we are chasing after, um, how we view uh, ourselves, how we view others. And then at the end of it, it actually produces a fearlessness, right? And so that's the kind of the cool, you know, he starts by saying, uh, you know, fear the one who can cast into hell. And then at the end here in verse Six, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two asaria? Yet not one of them forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So we would almost think <laughs> this is a strange contradiction in terms, except what's Jesus saying here? He's saying when you rightly fear God, when you then align with, with his design and, and submit yourself to him and his word and his will, well then now... <laughs> 
you don't have to fear him because he's your God. He, he's your protector. Uh, it, the, it's the very same, it's the very same one who has the authority to cast into hell, but yet when he's on your side, when he, and I think we can rightly see the connection here, Jesus, he's using, he says friends. That's not a common, that is not a common uh, term or language, especially in Luke, but to know that Jesus is God, and here he's referring to people as friends. So there's some encouragement that, yes, he has authority to cast into hell, but, but, but if he's your friend, well, then actually now we're drawn to see, wow, okay, so this, this sovereign, all-powerful, the one who even has authority to cast into hell, but he's for me, he's my friend. There's, that is very encouraging. It does, I think, appropriately in, in some if raise this question, though, of, well, how do we know who's in what group? How do I, who's the friend, and then who's the one that's going to get cast into hell? What, how do we discern this difference? And that's where we go then right into verse 8. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So it's confessing Christ. And it would be that simple, and it is that simple, uh, except I think it's probably worth pausing here just for a moment because what does that mean to confess Christ? Does that mean just, I believe in Jesus? There I did it. Magical phrase done. I've now confessed Christ. God is my friend. I will not face any judgment. Um, that's certainly what some people say. Uh, that doesn't, uh, not at all what, what Scripture would say, I think it's easy to consider also the fact that, again, in this, in this moment in time, these, these people were to confess, to just say that you were to align with this, this man from Nazareth named Jesus. That would have, that would have been a lot. And it could have meant that you would be killed. It could have meant that you would be cast out. All manner of horrible, horrible things that wouldn't even come across our mind would have been very real potentialities for, for these disciples, these early disciples um, that are going to come and be a part of the early church. So there's a, maybe a little bit lost in just because of the comfort and the freedom that we do have as, as Americans in the 21st century. We might even get applauded in a certain context to, to claim members of the Christian faith. And that would very much not have been the case for these people. So I think something uh, that's orienting there. Uh, and then if we go to 1 John, which let's go ahead and turn to 1 John uh, chapter 4. Just very, it's, it's a wonderful book, one of my favorite books. Um, very practical, real, on-the-ground language that I think is helpful as we desire to understand, okay, so wh what does this mean to confess Jesus what does that actually look like? Is it a, a, a just a trite sort of, yep, I, I believe. Um, is that all that we're talking about here? Is that all it takes to be the friend of God? We'll read uh, verses 15 to, to 21. This is the Apostle John. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has in us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love has been perfected with us, 
so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So realize that's a lot. <laughs> I mean, there's a, certainly right, we could do a whole sermon on, on 1 John 5, uh, 4, 15 through 21. There's just a few things in there that, that I want to pull out. First, from those first verses 15 and 16, this language of abiding. Uh, and elsewhere in the book, John talks a lot about how, well, here's just one of the true theological realities. If you have truly confessed Christ, if you are a true Christian, the Holy Spirit abides in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You've been born of Him, and He is now in you. So that's just a theological truth. Anyone who is a true Christian, anyone who has truly confessed Christ, has the Holy Spirit. So that's important piece number one. Uh, the next one was from verses 17 and 18. This is a lot of what we've already been talking about. It talked about this love that casts out fear, right? And so that fits perfectly with what Jesus has just taught, right? He says, well, the right fear of God actually then leads you to a place where then you don't fear God in that way. You're not now concerned that he's going to cast you in hell because you know that he isn't because you fear him. And so then you have now obeyed his commands and you have confessed Christ as Lord. You are now on his side. He is on your side. Uh, so he's your deliverer. He's your savior, not the one who's going to condemn you. And then the last two verses, 20 and 21, that's, the, that's that practical piece, right? So, so John is certainly, he's, he's telling us we need to be discerning. Uh, there are going to be people who quite literally, they say, I love God. Yep, I'm here for that. I confess Christ. But then their lives betray that reality. And in here, he, he, the, the particular angle he takes is if somebody is a true Christian, then the fruit of the Spirit in their life will manifest in a, in a genuine love for other Christians. Uh, when, when, when somebody says, I love God, I'm a Christian, and then they hate the things of God, and they hate the people of God, they hate what His Word has to say, then John says, the love of God is not in them, they're a liar, uh, and, and you shouldn't believe their false profession of faith. So, there's something of what confessing Christ means, right? So, it, yes, it, it does mean confessing Christ, I believe in Jesus. But it is, it's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. It is a spiritual reality uh, of being born of God, of abiding in God and Him abiding in you. Uh, those are necessary uh, entailments of what it means to truly confess Christ. First John is the, also the book that uses the language uh, that fits very well here also of don't just be uh, don't just love in, in word and in speech, but in deed and in truth. Again, this yet there would be something hypocritical. Oh, yep, love you, brother. I see your great need, and I have the means and the ability to help, but I'm not going to because actually I don't love you. I don't love you at all. So then it's, it is, it's evident that confessing Christ is not simply uh, lip service, but it's this internal reality change. Um, and it is, it's nothing less than the fruit of God the Holy Spirit's regenerative work in our hearts. Um, it, is, it is the work of the Spirit, and, and that leads us then well into uh, verse 10, 
which has been uh, quite a troubling verse for, for many, um, both now and in and, and times past. So verse 10 says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. As I said, that's caused a lot of people a lot of trouble. It, it, it causes fear, causes worry in some people who it probably shouldn't. Um, and then in some people who maybe should actually be concerned with what this has to say, they, they, they couldn't care less. Um, so I'll start by saying what it certainly isn't saying. Uh, there's a few th- phrases in here that kind of jump out at us. This verse is certainly not saying that the Holy Spirit is uh, more valuable than Christ or that, 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 that the third person of the Trinity is, is somehow yeah, uh, more glorious and more magnificent, and so therefore to blaspheme against him carries worse judgment than a blaspheme against Christ. That, that's, when we study the Word of God, that's a not available option. That's good to know. That's clear. Uh, it's, it's also, it's not saying that there's some magic phrase, some literal magic phrase that, oh, you said it, now you're damned and there's nothing you can do about it. You, you've, you've, you made the big mistake, the big, the big one, you did it. Sorry, I know you want, I wish, you're really wishing you could undo that, uh, but you said it. It, it. It's certainly not saying that. Um, and it's also not saying that in a moment somebody couldn't, Say, I don't believe, I don't do it under fear, out of fear, in a moment of pressure. If that was the case, then Peter would be in big trouble. He denied Christ three times, right? Uh, this was total blasphemy. And, and this is a person who had, who, had, who had spent years under the ministry of Christ. So, so this is not saying that you, you, even those who are among the elect uh, would not ever in a moment of of failure speak a word against their very Savior. It's not saying that either. I think the, the, the best language that we could bring to this is, is to say that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a, is a decisive denial of the Holy Spirit's testimony of who the Son is. When, 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 when the Spirit of God speaks, and then the spirit of a man says, I reject that entirely. I want nothing to do with that. And then persists in that throughout their days into the end of their days, operating from this position of, I have heard, I understand, I hear you, and I hate it. That very much seems to be uh, what, what Christ is, is saying, that be, be, be concerned. There's a person who needs to be concerned. And as I said, those are typically the people who are not so concerned about their uh, spiritual condition. Uh, uh, Hebrews uh, 10, verse 26, is another one of those, it's a very troubling passage for many, um, perhaps rightly so, but in this context, actually, I think these two, on their own troubling verses, help, help each other. Hebrews 10, 26 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So again, a lot of people have looked at that and said, what the heck does this mean? Are you saying if I sin after I profess to become a Christian, that then now I'm done? There's no chance for me? No, I think these things are talking about something very similar, which is 
And so the context of Hebrews helps us understand, right? Hebrews, written to Hebrews to teach them why Christ is better, why Christ is the, the true, He is the Messiah, He is the Son of God, He's the fulfillment of all these things. So that there was a temptation among the Jews at the time to actually to forsake Christ, because like, gee, this isn't really looking like what we thought. Let's go back to the sacrificial system, was, was, the, was the notion. And, and so then the author of Hebrews steps in and says, no, 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 there no, there's, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Christ was the one sacrifice for all time. If you reject his sacrifice, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, right? So if we go on willfully sinning, rejecting, you've heard it, you heard Christ, and you're like, maybe even for a minute you thought, I'll go for that, but then you decide, ah, never mind, I hear it, but I think there's something better. That is to forsake the one available means of salvation, right? So, so that, hopefully that's helpful um, with that sometimes challenging verse uh, for folks, but, but this, is, this is a persistent rejection, a decisive denial of the Holy Spirit's testimony as to who the Son is. Um, it, it certainly is, we could maybe say it this way, for those who fear that they have committed this unforgivable, unpardonable blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if your mind is even thinking and worried that, that you may have that's probably one of the clear indicators that you haven't, right? So um, take, take encouragement from that. We also shouldn't, uh, our view of the Holy Spirit shouldn't be limited to such negative terms, obviously. Um, Jesus goes on uh, in the next few verses, and, and he's going to tell us, right, that the Spirit is going to be the one who actually rescues us in moments of great peril. So we'll look at uh, verses 11 and 12. Now when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So there's something of a, a particular promise here. Again, as all scripture, this can get twisted. Uh, it's not a promise to, to pastors or to preachers that they don't have to prepare their sermons because the Holy Spirit is going to tell them what to say on the moment. Um, so let's go ahead and I'll turn to Acts 4. We'll read verses 1 through 12. All right, Acts 4. Now as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly agitated because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men who came to be about 5,000. Now it happened that on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in their midst, they began to inquire, By what power and what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, as to how this man has been saved from his sickness, then let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter got to experience a very real um, and profound fulfillment of this great promise, right? That it's exactly as Christ said. It's exactly what he said. He said, you're going to get dragged in front of the rulers. You're going to get dragged in front of the elders, the high priests, these people. They're going to question you. And, and of course, again, we, we start to see the, the ways that sometimes when we twist this out of its context, it doesn't make any sense. There's no way to prepare for that other than to just be regularly given over to the study of God's word, to be practicing the spiritual disciplines as Peter certainly would have been. But, but beyond that, there's no, you, you don't know when the people are going to drag you in front of the court and say, what is it you've been saying? You need to stop. Um, so there, there is a sense in which there's no way to prepare for that. And so then, wow, the promise is wonderful to say. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit will come and tell you what to say. And so the, the story for Peter is just a remarkable, wonderful, and he's, he's not the only one. The very same thing happens with Paul. Uh, and and again, it's good to see, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't guesswork. It says, filled with the Spirit. He didn't say that of himself. We would be tempted to think that, and I'm sure there were people there who just thought that. There would have been people they just saw Peter start talking. That's what they would have seen. But God tells us, well, what he said was proceeding from his mouth just after being filled with the Spirit. This was, this was the Holy Spirit um, coming in as, as the teacher, as an advocate. Uh, and so it, it, it's good to know that in those moments of, of great peril, uh, we can trust uh, God to protect his people as he has, this passage has, has labored to, to show us that yes, that indeed the very same God who has the power and authority cast into hell, he cares for you. He knows the exact number of hairs on your head, he'll send his Holy Spirit and, and, and he will guide and, and he will protect. In 1 John, again, um, chapter 2, this time, we see language uh, very similar, speaking of the Holy Spirit and his role as, as a teacher, as the teacher. 1 John 2, 26 and 27 says, These things... I have written to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing, this Holy Spirit, whom you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as he has taught you, abide in him. So there is, I think, an appropriate sense in which we can expand this out. Um, we're drawn to, to note how indeed the Holy Spirit is the teacher of the Christian, that it's the Holy Spirit who illuminates the very Word of God, and that we could read this book, we could read every page in it, but if the Holy Spirit is not unfolding the meaning to us and speaking to our hearts, then we are missing the element of power. We are missing that transform, transformative peace. Um, and so again, now as Christians, to then to know and to hear the promise of God that says, no, no, the Holy Spirit will be your teacher uh, and, and in fact, he alone is the one who has the ability to truly apply these realities and these truths to your heart, right? As you endeavor to, you're, you're seeking to obey your Lord Jesus who said, beware of hypocrisy. And so you're going to go and you run rightly to the scripture to, to try and align yourself with God and, and his truth and what he has said. 
to then know that even as you do that, the very power to walk that out is, is solely and entirely from the Holy Spirit. It, it, again, it's a very confidence-boosting thing because these tasks are so high. And, and again, the, the honest person, the person who is honest in their own heart, knows that they, they do not have the ability to do that. Uh, and so if it wasn't for a promise that the Holy Spirit would do this and that he will do it fully and sufficiently, we would be uh, in a very uh, sad state, in a very um, worrisome state. But that, that is not, not the case at all. Last place I'll have you turn, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4. You know, we've been bouncing around a lot, but this is the last, the last stop here. I think this is just a wonderful, as the uh, Paul's epistles often do, it, it's sort of a, a wonderful summation of so much that's been, that's been talked about here, uh, and it can be helpful to, to kind of package, package things in this way. So <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 1 through 6, we'll read. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's a wonderful, deeply encouraging uh, passage of Scripture to, to know that it, it is God who who alone has the power to, to save from hypocrisy. Um, and again, I, the, there, is, there could be a danger in, in a passage like this that, that actually the, true, that the Christian, the disciple, the friend, could, could uh, get just over... They, they recognize their hypocrisy. That's good. That's, that's the first step on the road to avoiding the... the cancer, the cancerous nature of it, right? Um, and so that, that certainly isn't where we ought to end, but as, as Paul directs us to, to just be moved to see that, yes, we've seen Christ, that, that the Holy Spirit has illuminated in a way we, we couldn't, we could read about, and don't we know people who, they've heard the story, they know who Jesus is, but they don't, they don't buy it. Or, or it clearly has not sunken into, the, into their heart. There, 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 is, there is still something, it seems, that, that keeps them back. So for those who, who love God, uh, who have any, even, even if at times it just seems like a small, boy, there's not much love there, um, but you find yourself pulled in that direction, um, then that, that is is worth and worthy of, of rejoicing and, and giving thanks to God that, that you have not made a decisive decision to reject the person of Christ, 
that you have seen it, you've heard it, you got it, and, you don't, and you're not into it. That, 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 that there is actually this internal wrestling is, is, a, is actually a wonderful uh, source of, of assurance and then, and then a great motivator to say, but, but now come and, and live in fellowship with God and live in fellowship with Christians and submit yourself to his word and pray and, and plead that God would continue to transform you and to conform you and to root out all of the hypocrisy, any amount of the leaven of the Pharisees that's made its way into our hearts and our lives, we, we can rightly uh, pray to God that he would change us. We hate the hypocrisy that remains within ourselves. Uh, it, it, it's not a bad thing. It wouldn't be bad to cry about that. It, it, it ought to move the soul, um, but then move to a place of confidence in Christ, as, as, as John said, well, that the perfect love that casts out the fear to see in Jesus the one who has saved from, from our own sinfulness and from, from our selfish desires, even those things that we try to keep hidden. Uh, and yet, Christ died. Christ died for us, and, and we can rejoice in that. And so, I pray that, that even just this week, uh, this is why we preach the Word of God every, every week, right? Because we need these sorts of reminders every week, every day we need these reminders. Um, so, this evening, tomorrow... As you go about, I, I do. I hope that I hope that we recognize the hypocrisy within ourselves when it rears its ugly head. But then that we can take confidence and, and solace to know that that Christ died for that and He has saved us from that. And so now we can just be all the more joyfully committed to following Him uh, and 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 aptly being called His friend and His disciple. So let's pray. Father, thank you for. Your word, thank you for the truth of what it says, but thank you for sending your spirit and, and to hear Jesus say that it, it's, it's better. He, he needed to, to ascend to your right hand so that he could send the spirit. So that way, we too, that, that he could live in us and that we could abide in you and, and be united to you by your indwelling spirit. And we can be comforted and taught by your spirit, working through your word as you inspired all of the authors who wrote this sacred scripture. Uh, we just, we thank you so much for that and, and for the reality. I pray that it would not be, we, we wouldn't find it so challenging to see these invisible things because indeed your, your, your spirit is invisible. I, I can't see it. We can't see it. But that we would so trust your word that says it is true that you have sent your spirit, that he is our teacher, that he unfolds the word to us. I pray that as we grow in our maturity and our faith and our obedience to you, that that would produce rightly a greater assurance, a greater assurance of, of salvation and eternal life that we have uh, but, but only in that way, in that right order, as, as we submit ourselves um, to you and, and, and ask and, and plead that we would be transformed, that our minds would be renewed. And so we do pray that you would uproot those seeds of hypocrisy that remain in our flesh, uh, even, even as those who have been justified by Christ and made new, new creatures, uh, yet we still wrestle. We feel that. We know it. Um, I pray that the 
the sorrow over the sin would just lead us to cling that much more to the cross uh, and to see the, the beauty, the wonder of what Christ has done. And, and then for those who, who have not yet, that, that they would hear this message and not decisively deny it, that they would humble themselves and, and see the message of Christ as, as their only hope, uh, that they would reject whatever type of falsely religious formalism that they may be walking on, whether they call it Christian or otherwise, that they would see the, the absolute bankruptcy of religion that is not in Christ, that is not born of your spirit, that is not activated and motivated by you and you alone. I just, that we would flee from that, that we would be, be so aware of it and that we would run from it, have nothing to do from it, uh, with it. And just thank you again for, for your people that we can gather as a body to worship you. And so now I pray that this time of music and, and celebration of the Lord's Supper would, would continue this worship that has already begun. And that we would just rejoice all the more uh, as we are reminded yet again and get to express our love for you and for your Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.